Would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73? You'll know we finished Luke's Gospel uh, last week, and uh, it's a bit bitsy uh, between now and September, so uh, I thought I would just do a few one-offs, and I thought Psalm 73 would be a good place uh, to begin. So Psalm 73 and verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped, my steps had nearly, uh, my feet had almost stumbled, my feet, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. Amen. And we know God will bless the reading of his own inspired word. I love the Psalms, and one of the reasons I love them is because they're Uh, honest-to-God accounts of not only the joys, but also the struggles of the believer. They were written by real people with real feelings who knew real emotions and at times experienced real struggles. They are refreshingly honest accounts of the trials and triumphs of the people of God of long ago. And I believe that's why they're so precious to us, because we as Christians can so readily identify with the expressions and experiences of the various authors of the Psalms. Now, Psalm 73 is the account of the personal struggle of the author, a struggle with doubt, cynicism, 
and unbelief. It was written by a man called Asaph, and we don't know an awful lot about Asaph, but that he was a musical, uh, a Levitical musician uh, at the temple, and he began his career on the cymbals, and he rose to become one of the directors of music. And here in the psalm, he openly and candidly shares with us some of his struggles, internal struggles, spiritual struggles that unsettled him. Now, I want you to notice five things this morning. First of all, the struggle in the psalmist. Asa faced a problem in this psalm, and the problem that he faced was the contradiction he observed between faith and fact, between theology and reality. His theological conviction is stated there in verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That was his creed. That was his confession. That was his doctrine. That was his uh, theological conviction. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He probably recited it in the temple. He sang it with the, the choir in the temple, and he mumbled it as he uh, moved out uh, from the temple uh, and entered his day. Truly, God is good to Israel. But the more he repeated that, the more he began to question it. As he looked at the world around him, it was not the pure in heart that knew the goodness of God, but it was the wicked. It was the unbeliever. It was the non-Israelite. What he witnessed, he couldn't square with his theology. Look at verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's as if the psalmist is saying, come off it. Let's face it. Let's be honest. Whether we sing it in worship or we recite it in the creed, it's not the pure in heart that are prospering. It's the corrupt, it's the callous, it's the indifferent, it's the wicked. It's these people that are doing very well, thank you very much. And in verses 3 to 11, Asaph catalogs what we might call the blessings of the wicked. He says, first of all, they are free from the troubles of life. Look at verses 4 and 5. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. As the psalmist looks out at the world around him, he says it's not the wicked who are struggling and suffering and plagued with problems like failing health. It's the good people. It's the believers. It's the pure in heart. They're the ones who lose loved ones. They're the ones who get cancer. They're the ones who are maimed in an accident or overtaken by illness. And it just seems so unfair and so unjust that it's the godless, the secularist, the atheist, the pagan, they seem to do so much better than the believer. They seem free from the troubles of life. Secondly, he says, they're free from the terrors of death. Look at verse 4. They have no pangs until death. The NIV, I think, loses that whole concept of death because they say they have no struggles, but they have no pangs until death, or as the NIV says in the footnote, they have no struggles in death. In death. They have no struggles 
at death. Their death is painless. It's easy. It's not a struggle. It's not the struggle that we imagine that unbelievers should have when they leave this world without hope. Sometimes we imagine that um, critical illness or a terminal condition will make the sort of non-Christian sit up and take notice and and perhaps um, seek after the Lord when they think of the prospect of a hopeless eternity. I thank God that is sometimes happens, that people from uh, their deathbed cry out for mercy and grace, and they find it. But for the majority, it doesn't give them a second thought. They have no struggles in death. I remember going to see someone who had, who had sent for me, and uh, they were on their deathbed, and I went into the, the, the room, and he said, Stephen, I, I want you to know that I have everything in place. Everything's in order. I thought, oh, great. He, he has sought the Lord. He has made peace with God. But no, he went on to say, I've been to the solicitor and the will has been settled. He wasn't the least bit interested or concerned about the ultimate destiny of his soul. And for the most part, that's true of the ungodly. They have no pangs in death. And that disturbed Asaph. It unsettled it. It shouldn't be. As he looked at the unbelieving world, he could say that they were free from the troubles of life, free from the terrors of death, and then thirdly, free from the constraints of morality. Look at what he says in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Asaph had long realized that there were ethical implications, spiritual implications to his faith. As a follower of God, he had a responsibility to keep his heart clean or pure, to keep away from sin. There were certain religious rites under the old covenant, like washing his hands, that he had to regularly engage in. But the ungodly were under no such obligation. They could do as they liked. They could live as they pleased. They were full of pride, verse 6, full of violence, verse 6. They speak with malice and threaten oppression, verse 8. They use their mouths to blaspheme against heaven and their tongue struts through the earth, verse 9. They are rich and they couldn't care less about anybody else. Uh, Verse 12 says they're always at ease in their wealth. And you know the thing about it is that that kind of behavior didn't cause them a second thought. Look at verse 7. Their eyes swell uh, through fatness. Now, that's a a Hebrew idiom, and it means that the person is so indulgent, so fat, that their eyes close over, and they don't see anybody else, or they don't see anybody else's needs. The NIV translates it, their hearts have become callous. They have lost their conscience. They can engage, engage in premarital sex or extramarital sex, and it doesn't cause them any concern whatsoever. They have no conscience about it. Self-indulgent behavior is all that they're interested in. They're not like me, says Asaph, who endeavored to live out the implications of his faith by keeping his a heart pure or clean and washing his hands in obedience to the law of God. So here's what Asaph observed when he looked 
at the unbelieving world, the ungodly were free from the struggles of life, free from the terrors of death, free from the constraints of any immorality. Um, what's more, the, the people of God admired them. Look at what he says there in verse 10. Therefore, his people, now the NIV translates that their people, but it should be his people. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. That even Christians are swept away by this kind of celebrity culture. They're the ones who admire the uh, sexually promiscuous and the, the drug takers and the, the, the uh, self-indulgent people. His people turn back to them. People, ordinary people, um, God's people are drawn to these arrogant uh, unbelievers who set themselves up against God and men. They are the ones who are doing well and are admired. And all of that seemed to contradict what Asaph had been taught, what Asaph sang, what Asaph recited. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Is that true? Is that true, that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart? That's not the way I see it. There was this great contradiction between his theology and reality, the struggle in the psalmist. The second thing I want you to notice is the effect on the psalmist. Now, I'm sure you can all identify with the feelings of the psalmist. Anyone with a modicum of intelligence has to admit that there is uh, uh, at least in this world, uh, a lot to contradict a bright and breezy confidence in God. Why is it that good Christian people struggle and suffer? Why is it that good people seem to be the ones that have uh, drawn the short straw in life? That they're the ones who suffer from heartache and heartbreak. Why is it as the country and western song says, the good die young. Now, for most of us, that drives us back to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, that there are things in this life that happen which we can't understand, but, uh, and we won't understand until eternity, but we rest in His sovereignty until we make sense of it all. But for some of us, that sense of unfairness troubles us so much that it leads us to question the goodness of God and sometimes even to question the very existence of God. And that's what happened to the psalmist. This contradiction between faith and fact, between his theology and reality, between what he believed and what he saw, led him to question the truth of that statement, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Asaph says, I came within a hair's breadth of abandoning the faith altogether. He was teetering on the verge of unbelief. You know how you miss your step and your whole body then is put in jeopardy? I have open back sandals. I hesitate to call them mules because that sounds a bit too feminine, but... But anyway, I have open back sandals, and I was coming down the stairs, and one of them slipped off and uh, at the top of the stairs, and I, I stumbled. I thought I was going to fall right down the stairs. 
My whole body was put in, in danger. And this one issue put the psalmist in spiritual danger. He couldn't stop thinking about it. He says in verse 14, For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. How can God be good to Israel? How can that be true when I see all that's happening around me? Kyle and Deleach, in their commentary, paraphrase verse 14 like this, I was incessantly tormented, and with every morning's dawn, my suffering was renewed. With every morning's dawn, my suffering was renewed. He couldn't get away from these thoughts, these thoughts that God isn't good, and they tormented him. And so deep and dark were these feelings, he felt unable to share them with anybody else. Look at verse 15. If I said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. If people knew what I was thinking, they would have stumbled. It would have been too hot to handle. It might be that he's thinking of the next generation. He's thinking of the young people. If young people knew what I was thinking, how I was struggling... It would be so detrimental to them. It would damage them, he says. For me as a leader with a position of responsibility to express such doubts, such thoughts, would be a betrayal to them, a stumbling block for them. Better not to mention it all. Better to bottle it up and keep it to myself. It would be too explosive otherwise. As for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped that was the effect that this, these doubts have on the psalmist. They put him in spiritual jeopardy. The struggle in the psalmist, the effect on the psalmist. The third thing I want you to notice is the answer for the psalmist. Verses 16 and 17 is the turning point in the psalm. It's the, the fulcrum on which the psalm turns. Pre-16 and 17 is full of darkness, despondency, and despair. Post-16 and 17, faith begins to rise and a confidence in God is restored. The whole psalm turns on verses 16 and 17. Let's just read those two verses. Verse 16, but when I thought uh, how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task. Listen to this, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. In the midst of his spiritual turmoil, Asaph makes his way to the temple, to the sanctuary of God. Maybe he couldn't avoid going to the temple because he was a Levitical musician. He was on the music rota. He had to go. But it was while in the sanctuary that things began to clear and his spiritual and faith, his spiritual faith and vision were restored. Now, I think that's significant in itself. It was where and when the people of God worshipped that his spiritual recovery began. The psalmist says in Psalm 22 and verse 3 that God is enthroned in the praises of his people. That where, where his people meet to praise him, God is there. Jesus said, if you want to meet me, it's where the two or three are gathered together in my name that you can meet me, that I'll be there. And when you are spiritually struggling and hesitating, the worst thing you can do, the worst thing you can do is to stay away from the collective worship of the people of God. 
It was when Asaph worshipped that he begins to understand and he begins to see things from God's perspective. It may have been something that was sung. It may have been something that was said. It may have been something that he saw, something that he heard. But when he heard this or uh, um, witnessed this, it had such an impression that his faith and confidence began to rise. Whatever means God used to bring to his attention, uh, it was the truth about eternity that affected and changed him. Look at verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. The NIV says, I understood their final destiny. Do you see what his problem was? Pre-verses 16 and 17, Asaph's assessment of the wicked was based on the here and now, how they fare and manage in this life. And in this life, they do very well. But there's more to life than this life. There's a life to come. There's a judgment to face. There's an eternity to experience. And when you take eternity into uh, account, they don't fare so well in that ultimate evaluation. They are, verse 18, placed in slippery places. Verse 18, they come to ruin. Verse 19, they are destroyed in a moment. Uh, Verse 19, they are swept away by terrors. The trouble with us as human beings, our assessment of people and how well they fare is only based on the temporal and the physical, on what we see. But there is an eternity to come. There is a heaven to gain. There is a hell to shun. And our assessment of how good it is for the wicked or for the righteous can only be made accurately when we take the full scope of eternity into account. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he says, if it was only for this life that we lived, we would be of all men most miserable. But it's not for this life that we live. It's not only for this life that we live. We live for the life to come. It's about uh, like the story I told you before about the farmer who was an atheist in the Bible Belt of America, and he wrote a letter to his local newspaper uh, and said that he had been carrying out an experiment in one of his fields. In that particular field, he says, I plowed it on a Sunday. I sowed it on a Sunday. During the summer months, I watered it on a Sunday. I fertilized it on a Sunday, and I harvested it on a Sunday. And he says, I want you to know that out of all my fields and out of all the fields of my Christian neighbors, that field, that particular field, where all the work was done on a Sunday, this October produced the greatest crop a better crop than anyone else. And the editor published the letter and added the little postscript, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. That's true of us. God doesn't always settle his accounts in this life. And if we're going to assess and to try and work out whether it's worth being a believer or not, we must take eternity into account. After all, this life is just a droplet in the ocean of eternity. The prosperity of the wicked in this life must be seen in the light of their poverty in eternity. Do you know what God the Father says about a person who lives only for this life and is only interested in the the temporal and the physical? He calls them a fool. Remember to the um, 
farmer in Luke chapter 12, you fool, you fool. Tonight, your soul will be required of you. The answer to the psalmist's problem was found in worship when he began to consider things from an eternal perspective. The answer for the psalmist. The struggle in the psalmist, the effect on the psalmist, the answer for the psalmist. The, the, the fourth thing I want you to notice is the recovery of the psalmist. The visit to the temple not only brought him to the point where he could make a, a proper judgment of the wicked in the light of eternity, but it also helped him to see, as David says in Psalm 27, the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He begins to see, well, well no, God's actually good to me, that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Life seems so unfair. It seemed that the wicked were prospering, but when he, his spiritual vision is restored, he begins to see how God has been good to him, that God is good to his people. And he begins to enumerate the blessings of God in the life of the believer. And you see those in verses 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. It is true the believer is not impervious to the pain that exists in a fallen world. But in the midst of that pain, uh, there are certain parcels of mercy, tokens of grace given to the believer in the midst of his trials. The trials aren't always taken away, but these blessings do come in the midst of the trials. The presence of God, verse 23, I am continually with you. Strengthen God, you hold my right hand. The guidance of God, you guide me with your counsel. And a future with God, afterwards you will take me into glory. Isn't that wonderful? In his troubles, Asaph was blinded to God's goodness. He forgot how good God was was. He saw the prosperity of the wicked and the problems of the righteous, and he concluded that God was not good. But now, with his spiritual vision restored, he begins to see how good God actually is, the presence of God. I am continually with you. You never leave me. You never withdraw from me, even in the valley, in the darkest of valleys. I fear no evil, for you are with me. That you, you are with me in my temptations and my trials and in my difficulties. You have promised I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even in the crucible of suffering, you manifest your presence to me. You know, the pastor, the story of the pastor, he was visiting uh, an elderly member of his congregation, and uh, he was uh, reading to her that promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he was pointing out that in the original, that's a double negative, and it's, I will never leave you. I will never, never leave you, and I will never, never forsake you. Ah, she says, pastor, one of the Lord's nevers is enough for me. Never never leave you, never forsake you. 
What did Jesus say to that trembling band of disciples that were about to embark on that uh, mission to take the gospel into all the world? He said, Lo, I am with you always. And always means always. In the valleys as well as the mountains, in the, uh, in the troughs as well as the peaks. I may not feel his presence. I may not sense his presence. But he has promised his presence and he is always there. Strengthen God. You hold me by my right hand. The right hand in Scripture was the, the, the arm of strength. We are saved by the, uh, a movement of the right hand of God, the arm of the Lord. And the picture is here that this man in his weakness is held in the place of his strength by God's hand. It's almost as if God is infusing strength into him, that he's given strength to him, that he strengthens us in the midst of our trials, that his grace is always sufficient, that he gives us the strength that we need. Philip Brooks said, I, I do not pray for a lighter load, but a stronger back. That he puts steel in our backs. He puts strength in our arm. He gives us the strength that we need. And he will never allow us to be tempted or tried. That's the same word in Greek. Tempted or tried. He will not suffer you to be tempted or tried beyond that which you're able to bear. He will always give the strength. Thirdly, guidance from God. You guide me with your counsel. He doesn't leave us to flap around on our own and to muddle through. He gives us direction from His Word. He gives us and guides us his, by His precepts. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is led for your faith in His excellent Word. And you know that to be true, that that here you are on, on, on tottering on the brink of unbelief. And you come to church and uh, a word is spoken or a word is said and it just grabs your heart and it pulls it back to God. That, that he, uh, you're, you're um, uncertain about what course to take or what direction to take. And you open your Bible and, and God just speaks into your life and, and gives you the guidance. Or you're struggling with a, an ethical or a moral issue and, and God just brings his word to bear upon it. He guides you with his counsel. So we have the presence of God, strength in God, guidance from God, and a future with God. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Isn't that wonderful? That we're heading to glory. Not so the wicked. Verse 19, they will be destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. It's a, it's a frightening thing. But afterwards, he will take us into glory. Let the world deride her. Pity, I will glory in his name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting pleasures, none but Zion's children know. He will wipe every tear from your eye. Every tear. What makes you cry? What makes you weep? What makes you sad? The very reason for that sadness will be taken away. Every tear. 
Do you ever get homesick for heaven? Homesick for heaven? That you just want to be there with the Lord where every tear is wiped away. Truly God is good to Israel. Is that true? Yes, it's true. Because we have the presence of God. We have strength from God, guidance from God, and a future with God. Afterward, you will receive me into glory. What could be better than that? Do you see the recovery that the psalmist makes? He begins to count his blessings, to enumerate his blessings, and the depression and the despondency lifts, and he realizes how good God is. Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what God has done. Pastor Bowers, you know, in, in Rosary Park, he used to get us to sing, count your many blessings, name them ton by ton, and it will surprise you what God has done. The struggle in the psalmist, the effect in the psalmist, the answer to the psalmist, the recovery of the psalmist, God was good. Finally, notice the response of the psalmist. You notice the remarkable change in the psalm. It begins with the psalmist questioning the goodness and faithfulness of God, but it ends with the psalmist affirming the goodness and faithfulness of God. Look at verse 25 through to verse 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put to an end everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me. Notice this. It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your wonderful works. Do you see that? He was envying the arrogant. That's how the psalm began, but not anymore. For behold, verse 27, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. That visit to the temple had readjusted his focus. The wicked may have it good in this life, but not in the life to come. He views things from an eternal perspective. They will perish. He is not envying them now. He says in verse 28, but for me it is good to be near God. It's good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge that I might tell of all your deeds. It's, it's good, he says, to have a relationship with God. It's good to be near God. It's good to be a believer in God. It's, it's good to be a Christian. Do you ever wonder if it's worth being a Christian? Do you ever, do you ever think to yourself, is, is it really worth it? The sacrifices that I make, keeping my heart pure, the obligations that I have, washing my hands in innocence, those obligations, those church obligations, is it, is it worth it? I want to tell you from the life of the psalmist this morning, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's good. It's good to be near God. That was his conclusion. It is good to be near God. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Amen.